Plugged In podcast presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today is Trisha Curtis. Trisha is a well-known industry advisor and public speaker. She's the president and CEO of PetroNerds and the co-host of the PetroNerds podcast. Trisha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you have a very interesting background. Uh, your degree is in international political economy, and I know you spend some time in sort of the think tank world, and you have an affiliation with the uh, the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Uh, pretty wide uh, range of things there. Um, so uh, why don't you just start by giving us a little bit of an introduction about how you got into sort of energy policy and the energy business. And then uh, tell us about your journey to PetroNerds and a short description of your work there and what you guys work on there. Yeah, I mean, my journey is a little bit different because you came at it from the, the academic perspective. And I, I came at it actually more probably from the, my roots or, or a little more humble and from the from the labor side, which I'm actually very proud of. But my my grandfather on my dad's side was a, 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 a pumper in the oil field in Wyoming, and my dad pumped oil wells as well. And uh, my other grandfather was a wheat farmer, so very commodities driven family and, and very uh, grew up in, in rural uh, southwest or northwest Colorado and southwest Wyoming and sort of straddled that border. And so oil and the business, I suppose, was probably always in my blood a little bit. But when I went to school, I went to undergrad here in Denver, and I did, I doubled in economics and politics, and I minored in criminology. And I was very, from the onset, was very, very interested in economics and the international relations side, and uh, ended up interning at, at Parliament, actually in London in, during undergrad. And that kind of turned me on a little bit to the, you know, the broader, I'd been working in international relations and stuff or, or interested in it and, and actually oil, particularly China and Russia, and um, and had was very, very fortunate to get into London School of Economics and did my master's in international political economy. And um, that was very, uh, I mean, I was obviously really keen on it and very interested. It was a perfect mix between economics and international relations. Um, and it was very fascinating, especially because the time was basically, it was right on the, on the uh, tail end of the, or the beginning of the 2008 financial crisis. So it was a very interesting time to be there and studying. Um, and, you know, and then from there, you know, I've, I've mentioned this in other, you know, interviews and podcasts, but from there it was, I came out of school in the, in the heart of the recession. So it was 2010 and it was just in, incredibly hard to get a job. And I had come to Den back to Denver and looked for jobs and it was impossible. I couldn't get a secretary job at Coors or, or BP or anything. It was impossible. Um, so I, I bought a one-way ticket to DC and I cold called every energy organization and, and was pretty passionate about energy and knew I wanted to work in, in oil if I could. And I ended up with the Energy Policy Research Foundation, which you probably know, um, which is a small uh, think tank in, in Georgetown in DC, and was uh, fortunate to really cut my teeth on the unconventionals and Keystone Excel and sort of <clears throat> working on midstream and upstream and, and was able to learn a lot um, and absolutely loved it. And then decided to start my own business and came out here to Denver. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's basically that in a nutshell. And then I started, I started my business. I came out to Denver and, you know, PetroNerds has, I've been very fortunate to, I mean, I'm unfortunate in some regards with, with the timing of being in 2016 of, of, of starting it and it being uh, not a super fun time in the oil and gas industry, but honestly, it's been a rough patch in, in the oil patch from 2016 really to now. I mean, you've had uh, some, some, 
spots where things have recovered, but it's been very volatile. And so my career has been honestly defined by a lot of that volatility. And so much of what I do is, is explaining the very granular stuff on a, you know, almost a wells up basis to some clients and having, you know, understanding the information, but really marrying it with operator behavior and what the operators actually do versus what they actually say. Um, and just trying to be as well-informed on issues as, as possible. And so I, you know, pride myself in leaving no stone unturned for my clients and, you know, and I do a lot of work on the macro as well. And I spend, uh, you know, focus my previous work and stuff at folks a lot on China and things. So, um, marrying that together has been, you know, at least my perspective and from my client's perspective has been very beneficial to them. So I've, I've been very blessed and, and really, really love the work. So I'm extremely passionate about it. Yeah, I've been listening to a few of your podcasts, uh, just getting ready for this interview, and I was blown away by just the range, your ability to speak about sort of the geopolitics and then what's going on just sort of on the ground uh, by producers and uh, regulatory issues. Your podcast is great, and uh, I've really enjoyed just sort of the range of topics that you guys discuss. And um, on our podcast, we tend to focus on public policy issues, particularly here at the federal level. Um, but since we have somebody who has such a range, I think it would make sense to talk a little bit about just sort of the day-to-day -day ins and outs of the oil market right now. Um, obviously, COVID was a huge shock to things. Where are we in terms of uh, sort of demand recovering? And then oil prices are hovering around uh, about $60 a barrel right now. I've seen some people predicting them to go as high as $75 or $80. Could you just give us our, your outlook on oil prices and just sort of where things are with the market right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And usually, I mean, the first one you should ask, so you're, you got, I mean, where's the market going and where you at is, is the million dollar question. I mean, we have been kind of range bound and stuck in the 60 range. And that was, you know, we have to remember that was coming off of kind of a 65 high, which I think was a little too hot. And when we were ramping up like that, and that was a quick ramp up because we, you know, I, I was very comfortable during COVID that once we, even even in March, when, when prices were slipping, that uh, something was going to have to happen, that you were going to have to have a deal made by the Saudis and Russians, and it just wasn't going to keep sliding because they already had very wounded fiscal balance sheets, you know, and they were already in, in not a great shape from the years prior. So the ability for them to take, yes, they can produce lots of crude oil, but the ability for them to financially take that pain was it was much less than a lot of people realize, especially here in the US and a lot, everybody gives them a lot of credit for they can just do this forever. They obviously couldn't, they came to the table and they negotiated. And really from there, it was kind of basic that we would see, our, the floor seemed to be see around 40 and then we were steadily gonna ramp up to 50. I was very fortunate that I made at least that, that call right. This really rapid ramp from 50 to, you know, we went to 65 and now we're back to sort of 59. That's happened within three months, you know, that, that steady ramp up to 65. And I do think that was too fast. It was too hot. Prices got a little ahead of themselves. And that we, we have to be careful with that because that's when you were hearing, as you mentioned, those calls for $75 oil. We've heard much higher 80s, 90s, 100s, even, you know, within the next year or two. And there's some degree, I, I can see where some of that's coming from in the this demand recovery, but the demand recovery has been very lumpy. So it's not so much, you know, and I, I've tried to explain this in my podcast before, but I think when we when people view price, they, they sometimes misplace their understanding of demand and their understanding of supply. And you have to be very careful that it's not, it's never just one or the other. Um, and they're, they're usually a little bit more complex. And in today's market, 
the way OPEC plus is sort of managing the market and the fact that we do have flexible barrels, even though some you know may disagree with that, it, it sort of changes how you should view and think about oil. So we've had lumpy demand. We're doing very well in the US. If you look at you know US products supplied and you look, I mean US demand, our recovery, we're still about a million barrels a day or a little less than a million barrels a day off of, of gasoline demand, of our total gasoline demand. And we're still off on jet fuel, but both have recovered considerably well. Diesel's recovered. So overall, we're literally almost from a total product perspective of a product of oil demand, we're almost, we're, we're definitely in the recovery territory for the US. That is not said for the entire world. And we're certainly seeing pain, you know, obviously renewed lockdowns in Europe. Um, and they've had really had trouble with the uptake of the vaccine in Europe. And we're also seeing issues within India now. And India is kind of twofold because they have the virus situation, but then they also are not responding well to higher prices. And that's a really important thing that I think just a lot of folks have to realize is that, you know, we had a check on prices in 2018 when prices were $86 a barrel WTI and, or $86 a barrel Brent and 76 WTI. And prices were really not supported at those, demand was really not supported at those levels. Um, and it came back down. Now, at the same time, we also had you know, in November of 2018, we also had every, you know, the US producing over 11 million barrels per day. Um, Saudi Arabia producing over 11 million barrels per day and Russia producing over 11 million barrels per day. So that volume in itself obviously helped pull the market off and everybody went crazy. But it was a point that we demand levels really were not supported at those at those high prices. And we're see, hearing the same things out of, you know, we've even had some some U.S. officials comment to the Saudis that prices are getting a little too hot, and the same thing for the same thing for the you know India has been making a lot of comments to the Saudi, and the the Saudi oil minister response has been, well, why don't you just use those barrels that you stockpiled at such cheap prices? And that has not uh, the the, Indi the Indians have not taken that very uh, favorably, and they have actually responded by trying to diversify their imports a little bit more and take more U.S. Uh, crude supplies. Not that they will impact their the overall crude price at all, but that it, it sort of is just a, you know, it's a note, it, it's a notice to Saudi Arabia that they're going to diversify and they don't want to be beholden to them for their crude oil. So it's just, it's one of the mechanisms they can use to try to um, impact prices. So, so overall we are, the globe is recovering, but we were at such lows. And then you have this, you know, you have this massive uh, energy transition impetus that that took place during, you know, had been taking place, but really was sort of the nail in the coffin within COVID because what COVID did was it gave folks a lens of what it could look like. When you shut down the economy, the biggest single reduction in, in CO2 emissions was actually, I mean, the biggest single reduction in everything for crude oil was in energy was transportation being shut down uh, to a large extent in the US. So that's where we saw a big drop in CO2 emissions in the US was from transportation. And that gave folks that, this concept and idea that, okay, this is what it could look like. And it, it, I do believe that it did help really propel some of these forecasts that we see from BP and IEA of what, you know, oil demand, the, the, the slides that they have in oil demand for their given scenarios and outlooks that they have for two degrees or 1.5 degrees or sustainable development or whatever they are. So speaking of the energy transition, obviously uh, public policy is a big part of that. And, you know, when I talked to uh, my boss, Tom, Tom File, uh, he suggests I have you on uh, he said that you should definitely discuss early actions of the Biden administration, how they're impacting people on the ground uh, right now with Tricia, because if there's somebody to talk to, she's the one who knows it. Um, I guess we're, we're what, we're three months into the Biden administration now. Let's start with, I, I guess, a federal leasing ban. Uh, I think 
when that news broke back in January, I had our policy director on, and uh, he gave a quick overview of what was going on there. But just for our listeners, could you give um, just a short overview of what exactly is going on? Great. Well, I think it's I've been very vocal and, and very honest, and in, in you know trying to you know apart from the the actual politics of it, just the implications of of this administration is very very different than previous administrations on oil and gas. So um, it's it. It's not. It's not a stretch to say this is the actions that this administration has taken are beyond are unprecedented. And from the the attack on the oil and gas industry, and there are a number of sort of reasons for why oil and gas I think is being targeted. One is is that comment I mentioned on you know what happened during COVID and the energy transition. You know this, the thinking behind the energy transition and, and what the world could look like. And and in, for many regards for CO two emissions. Um, is viewed as a oil is viewed as a very low hanging fruit. The problem is, <clears throat> obviously, we know that CO two emissions from your tailpipe emissions are one thing, and then your your emissions from actually production are another thing. And we are this administration has is is definitely going after production, um, whether it's on you know federal lands or not. But it, from the very beginning, the the day one, within two hours in office, that the executive order that was signed to cancel the permit for Keystone XL that was largely symbolic. I mean, <clears throat> Keystone XL had obviously struggled. You know, under Trump, and Trump was able to uh, sort of accelerate, and I think the Dakota Access Pipeline was was um, finished and built and everything. But Keystone XL wasn't. So though we've we've struggled with you know building new greenfield large scale pipelines for for a couple for at least over a decade right now, and it's it's sort of um, been in the backdrop of my entire career that I, I've studied these pipelines. So that was <clears throat> that was largely symbolic. Um, it still is an is and was a very important pipeline in terms of how you know needing another outlet for for crude oil supplies to move. And it's it's the redundancy piece, sort of that a lot of folks don't realize is that you have to just just for any energy transportation, same for transmission lines or electricity, is that you do need redundancy in the system because if one thing goes out, then you don't have it. And we do use a lot of crude oil around not just in the U.S. and but around the world. And so that not having pipelines or not having an extra pipeline um, creates a lot of con- can create a lot of consternation conflicts on the, from the upstream perspective and just transportation and it, it's no different I think folks probably need to liken it to where you know we transport most crude oil via tanker in the water and if we took all those tankers out or we took out routes that people had and we saw what that looked like when this um you know when the Suez was blocked that's basically what it's like it's taking that redundancy out and so you have problems um in the system now in terms of what this administration has done in, in from the upstream perspective and the federal leasing ban, it really has been very complicated because the acting secretary of interior, and there has not been a lot of follow-up on this. We haven't heard a lot of explanation, at least from my perspective or from what I've seen. Um, and if you have comments on it, feel free. But the executive order from the acting secretary of interior at the time was this order, it wasn't an executive, sorry, it was order number 3395. But that happened immediately as well. And so between the canceling of Keystone Excel and that order, it was a real like wake up call to the industry of holy crap, what's going on. And I still think the industry has done, I personally think the industry is is really wanting to be very optimistic about their their chances with this administration um, to sort of work with them. And and they really think this is Obama 2.0. So, so many CEOs are on the record and have commented that they've, they've dealt with Biden under Obama. And they're just very confident that he understands natural gas, he understands energy security, and that this is just going to, we will work out these issues. And the trouble I have with that is that, well, why did he do all the things that he did, at least in the first few days? And again, we sort of knew those were symbolic and he was going to do them. But that 3395 order was very confusing because it was a suspension of delegated authority. It was by the acting secretary of interior at the time. 
It included, so it basically suspended all this authority so nobody could do anything, but it did include banning permitting. So it banned issuing permits on federal land. So basically operators who had gone into a legal contract with the federal government for existing lease that they had paid for could no longer get the permits. And that's kind of a normal day-to-day part of the business operation is that you're, you know, you're delineating your acreage and you're applying for your permits and everything. So all that was suspended. And then um, included in that, which was, was the tribal lands were listed in that. And those are, I mean, they, the federal government does not have um, legal authority over tribal lands or, or Indian lands to actually do that. So it created some, some real, I, I think it definitely created some consternation with the tribal communities. Um, and, you know, the Indian tribe wrote a very stern letter to, um, to the, the, the Secretary of Interior and the administration saying, this is against our sovereignty. Um, they've sent, they sort of rescinded that. I mean, it, kind of BS in my opinion that they rescinded it because they didn't have the authority in the first place, but they did sort of remove it and clarify. And, you know, we've recently had, and we talk about this on our podcast, on the Petronas podcast that actually dropped today, but the um, the Secretary of Interior, the, that the body of the Secretary of Interior, the, folk, the woman that's in charge of BLM and the woman that's in charge of Bureau of Ocean Energy Management actually hosted a big, you know, discussion and, and forum on oil and gas leasing on federal land. Um, on in response to the climate change executive order that was issued on, and I'm like, it's 1408 or something like that, that was issued on January 27th. And so that's really the, the piece I think the I, the industry has struggled with is that because nothing has yet happened technically, um, and technically the BLM is allowed to issue permits, it doesn't seem to me like they're actually doing much there. I think they feel like they're, I'm guessing that they feel like they're probably in limbo and they're probably a little nervous because basically that suspension of delegated authority, that, that's expired now, but the ban on leasing is in place. So there is no new leasing on federal land right now. Um, in terms of the, if you read the, that executive order, it's basically a big a pause right now until they're doing a study. And so this this four-hour event that the Secretary of Interior hosted, you know, had um, some industry panelists that had uh, Earth Justice and and you know the folks that were obviously against the you know any new drilling on, on federal land. And it had it started out though with the Native American tribes, which was very um, a very very telling sort of panel in terms of some of the you know environmental consequences that some tribes face, but really that these tribes, especially Alaska in particular, um, the Native American companies that want that own some of these assets and these tribes that really have so much uh, a big stake in the mineral rights and in the ownership of these assets and want to both, you know, whether they want to develop green energy or they want to develop fossil fuels, that they want that right to do it. Um, And I think particularly the woman from Alaska was very, very serious about, you know, Alaska's wanting the right to choose themselves of how they they go through this energy transition. Um, So that that's sort of where we're at in in terms of where the 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 administration is at. And I would say the waters are extremely murky. They're very telling to me. It's This is not rocket science. This is not going to go well for the oil and gas industry. The fact that the tax plan also, the tax plan includes the reduction of, of, fuel, of subsidies for the oil and gas industry. And it's really, you know, it's just the breaking of the taxes. And they explain in it that it's basically 35 billion over 10 years. That's not that much money, actually. You know, when you think about it, you're talking about a few billion each year, you know, um, and that's, to 35 billion over 10 years, and then they're going to take that money and it's going to go to other places. But the particularly the words that they they comment within that tax plan is that you know if they re they say that it will definitely impact the profitability of oil and gas companies, but it won't impact production 
in the US and it will impact energy security. And that's absolutely false. And I, I, I think I mentioned in my podcast, but I will be chasing up the 2018 study that they are referencing in there. But you cannot impact the profitability of US companies and assume that you're not going to impact their, um, their production as well. And you literally have seen case in point of what happened during COVID and that profitability and what we're seeing now. And there's just immense pressure on, on oil companies because it's the the view and vantage point in oil is so, so pessimistic um, that it's, it's, it's extremely complex for folks to do business. So that's sort of the situation right now. Yeah, the only thing that I've seen, and you mentioned, is the study that's supposed to come out from the interior the, this summer. I don't think they've given like a, a date or anything on it. Do you have any information about what we're going to expect from that study? Is Does this look like a major restructuring? Uh, major restructuring of like royalty payments, or is your guess as good as mine right now? It seems like there isn't really any information about uh, where they seem to be going with it. Well, I mean, you can tell from their tone, and that that and it's it's a get, but it's it's an indication. So when they did that meeting and presentation um, on March twenty fifth, and that I didn't, they're not giving the comment period is is it expires April fifteenth. So if you have anything, it's a very short window to actually get your comments and stuff in. It's a very dense three hour so you know four almost four hour meeting, and they opened it up explaining the the numbers right that your royalty rates were twelve point five percent on average. So I'm expecting at the very least if you can you know in Earth Justice and other uh, entities were 100% against any new leasing. So they're torn between either jacking up the royalty rates, I think really high, reducing you know, leasing extensively, or just banning it. And I think the, uh, the, I think the likelihood that you just don't see any new leasing on federal land on, in the next four years is very high. Um, I think that that's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's what a lot of folks, um, that's what a lot of folks desire. Um, it does bring in, they broke out the numbers, so they get 12.5% royalty. Um, and there are some things they can probably adjust. So if they are going to continue to go forward, you're going to see higher royalty rates. But on just the domestic, you know, on the lower 48, the amount of money that they're bringing in is over three and a half billion a year. So we're, we're talking a significant amount of money from, you know, and there, there's more money. And that was 2020. So it's it's higher than that significantly because prices were so low. So you're you can easily see more. I think there's ways for them to generate more revenue, but it's a lot of money for them to turn away. And they get over same about four billion from offshore as well, just from the off just from the leases of of the um, offshore continental shelf. So that's huge. I mean, it, we're talking about seven billion dollars um, just right there. And then that doesn't include you know lots of other taxes and, and, and different things, but $7 million is a lot of money that they would have to try and, and figure out how to replace that. That's bigger than that number of the, you know, we were talking about the the basically half that over 10 years from the, the profit side that they think they're going to make back with that, that tax change. So that to me is, um, they're in a tricky spot with that. And they have, you know, the, the presentations we saw from the, the environmental groups were, there was no wiggle room. It was just, let's end all new drilling. And, and the, the impetus behind that and the, the understanding and stuff behind that was that this is just where the federal government needs to take a stance and show that, you know, that we're going in a different direction. And, you know, from how uh, Biden-Harris campaign, they explained that, they talked about that, that this is what we need to do. So I am, I don't, I'm not confident that they're just going to, you know, open this up and think about, hey, okay, let's move this forward. Because they have made lots of comments that the industry has been stockpiling. And the industry hasn't really, um, you know, the guy from API didn't like those comments and basically said, no, the industry hasn't been stockpiling. Truthfully, some operators have stopped, have 
permits. I mean, we saw operators like EOG really increase theirs very intelligently. I mean, if I was advising these companies, I would have absolutely told them, you know, stockpile your permits as much as possible. Surprisingly, we didn't see enough companies, I don't think, at least for states like Texas or states like New Mexico and Wyoming, actually stockpile because these permits expire in 24 months. So if you can't get an extension to these permits, what we have is a is a if you stack up these permits by via age, yes, we have a lot of permits. We have, you know, 3,000 some permits in, in southern New Mexico that are available, but they're not all going to be able to be drilled quickly enough. And they're not all they're not fully permitted. So you have to, when you're developing these assets, and this is why I try to get people to think back, think back to you know the articles that you saw in the Wall Street Journal on spacing and, and drainage and you know how these operators were lying about the acreage and stuff. This really came back to, you know, you have to develop your assets, these these reservoirs, which are great in, in New Mexico and in the Delaware, but they're they're very deep. They're very thoroughly mature. Um, they're very high pressured, and these reservoirs are are nestled next to each other. And so you have to develop all these wells together. So if you are not fully permitted and have all the you know development perfectly spaced to to according to your de delineation, because you can't change that, and you'd have to get a new permit for that. Um, so you have to space that right. You have to develop all the reservoirs at once, which means you have to have a lot of stack pay. You have to do it, and then you have to drill it and complete it all at once to actually manage that reservoir properly. And I don't think a lot of those those wells that we see that are permitted in New Mexico are, are just not fully permitted from an operator perspective, which means they won't get drilled. So this, this concept of stockpiling is um, it's just misleading and it's poor. And it's something that you've seen from um, in some articles and stuff that people said, oh, well, Chevron and Exxon, I think CNN had commented, they can just frack away because they have all these permits. And that's just not how business is actually done. You know, it's like giving a, uh, you know, a wind or solar company a, a fraction of the land and then saying, well, this is enough, just go do it. And they would say, no, we need more land. We have to do this you know, appropriately, or we're not going to be able to develop our assets. And it's no different than that. Yeah, obviously, the, uh, then the, the pause on federal lands it, uh, is going to impact some states a little bit more than others. Uh, New Mexico, obviously, is a state where a uh, higher amount of production is done on federal lands than, say, in Texas. What is your outlook for just sort of how does this, uh, if at all, if it reshapes uh, production in different states and just... Uh, because of the the differences in federal and private lands uh, in different regions, could you just talk about what your outlook is sort of going forward in terms of does this help uh, Texas in some way or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it definitely 100% benefits Texas. Any any place with and you know if if the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline is made if it doesn't get canceled, it benefits North Dakota as well because both Texas and North Dakota have very limited federal land and have a lot of have have private mineral rights and a lot of not just private mineral rights, but just private land in general. And Texas is extremely favorable. You can build infrastructure, it has lots of infrastructure. And so it it, it is already benefiting. We are already seeing the benefit of, of some uncertainty on the, you know, on these federal lands that are benefiting Texas. Places like New, uh, the Southern, I mean, New, the two counties in, in New Mexico, um, Lay and Eddy County are the bulk of the, their two counties are producing 1 million barrels a day of production. I mean, this is arguably some of the best rock in the entire world. And that's coming from probably about 6,500 horizontal wells. And that is a, um, I mean, it's just, it's just a, a tiny amount of rock, you know, a tiny amount of land that, that's, and, and 6,500 horizontal wells producing a million barrels a day is a lot. We're talking that, you know, some small OPEC countries. So that, that's being impacted because people are trying to drill that or they're trying to drill it and hold it. And they're just, there's a lot of uncertainty. So we'll we will see if if they continue to you know if they don't accelerate or allow for permits or any changing on leases I think you will definitely see a pivot toward um, you're going to see the pivot as you're already seeing toward Texas Wyoming is a, in a real pickle because 
you know, a lot of those permits are expiring. Um, I think companies like EOG and some others that have permits that they have enough permits in their in their um, bank, they, they'll be okay for a while. And I think a lot of folks are just trying to ride this out too, of saying, well, if this is all done via executive order, it can be undone via executive order as well. Um, so there's there's that gray area. Alaska is tricky. I mean, Alaska is we we have federal land and we have and you have so many tribal communities. And I think that it's uh, that's a tricky one in terms of how this administration is. It, it seemed to me very complex listening to the the panelists of at the Department of Interior meeting. It seemed very, very complex on the um, on the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs side um, because they don't have jurisdiction over that. Though at the same time, what did make me nervous, I guess, about this um, that panel and that that there was a conversation was that they said, well, you know, this is obviously we're talking about federal land, but we're not precluding everything else. And it was sort of like, what are best practices? What are things they can do? It's not as though they're not looking at private land. And they certainly, within the executive order on climate change, it is, it is so, so dense and so broad and so vast and so sweeping that it could easily, you could easily compass private land from, you know, whether it's endangered species, um, and you were talking about the, you know, sage grouse or or the, the sand lizard or, or anything in, in all those things from a endangered species perspective or from a methane rules and regulation perspective. There are a lot of ways that could really, if you just think of super, you know, throwing stuff down the pipeline really quickly, whether it's endangered species, methane rules, and changing taxes on oil companies, you can see a, a, a kind of a triad effect that could really impact um, private land as well. But I think those, your main states and the Gulf of Mexico, obviously is that's all federal um and so unless they you know you, you'll have the production that you have you're not going to have anything you know you're obviously not doing probably going to do any more new leases so it's, it's the leases that people have and whether or not they can permit so i think there was confusion chevron commented in their q1 earnings called some confusion on you know whether or not they would be able to continue permitting on their existing leases and as long as that's to go forward i think for the time being you won't see a massive impact on production but you know, the Gulf of Mexico produces usually between a million and 1.5 million barrels a day. It's a lot of production. Um, so it's a it's a big deal on offshore waters from the Gulf of Mexico perspective, and then that million barrels a day. So there's a lot of production at stake, and people don't realize that, you know, you're continually drilling and developing this stuff. And we're, we're at 11 million barrels per day for the U.S. production right now. And, you know, we were at, at our high, we were at uh, 13 million barrels per day. We've declined since then. And we've really lost about a, a good, you know, million barrel a day plus in the, in the COVID COVID price collapse that and we've been sort of flat. We have been bringing a lot of rigs back. So we'll see in the next couple months sort of where production levels are at. Um, but we also had this, you know, the big Texas storm was shut in a lot of production in February. And so there's just, there's a lot of moving parts that are taking place right now. Yeah. And on top of all this now, uh, last week, Biden announced his infrastructure proposal, which isn't directly tied to, I guess, federal and gas regulations necessarily, but um, a lot of what was in that proposal is heavily focused on sort of the greening of the transportation sector, electricity sector. They announced, uh, I think there's a plan for 100% carbon free electricity by 2035. There's a national clean energy standard, uh, subsidies for electric vehicles, a lot of stuff in there that uh, sort of indirectly tied to oil and gas. Just quickly, your two cents on the infrastructure bill. What are you paying attention to there? And um, what do you think people in the industry should be paying attention to attention to in terms of uh, spending and infrastructure? Well, I think they are tied. So that they're all tied to the original executive order on climate change. And so that executive order on climate change that came out January 27th, and that's why I really encourage everyone when I get on podcast or anything is to take a look at it because 
the it's it's very damning in terms of how it talks about the oil and gas industry, but it talks about the going decarbonizing the grid by 2035. It doesn't tell you how to get there, but that they they want to decarbonize the grid by 2035. And so the reason it it it's all it's the thread because it's what the so the, the Department of Interior, the only reason they're doing that forum on oil and gas listing is because of that order on climate change. And the same thing with this tax bill, you know, decarbonizing the grid you got to break down the grid. You know, I've been putting some charts and stuff out on LinkedIn. I mean, California is over, at least if you just look on an hourly basis over the past year, they're over 50%, 50% natural gas. So, I mean, decarbonizing the grid would, would require if you're, if you're not uh, removing all fossil fuels, which would be virtually impossible, especially from a natural gas perspective, one, you would either have to increase a lot of natural gas into, to actually up to take in more of these renewables or, and you would have to have carbon capture to fully decarbonize this. Now it's mentioned, I did see that it was mentioned in the infrastructure bill and I have yet to, I'll, I'll be diving into it in, in more details, but I think you just have to be really careful that it's not uh, twisted, that this is done in a, in a coherent frame. Um, and I'm, I'm not confident that it will be. I mean, you would have to be bringing uh, industry experts on fossil fuels and renewables together, which I don't see that happening, to really work this out and saying, how can we you know, build new grids to do this? And the other reason I, I'm skeptical of it is that the numbers that you see, so if you look at BP's numbers from their um, their their forecasts that they have on, you know, from their sustainable development scenarios and things that they have, they have slotted in there basically over over decades. But it's it's uh, on the grid side, they've slotted in like thirty trillion dollars for uh, just changing for for electricity for grid. And if you see some of the studies out of the U.S. Just for transmission lines alone to decarbonize the grid, or I think it's a Berkeley study that was 90% clean and 10% was not clean, and that was that was two trillion dollars almost almost just in transmission lines alone. So I, I have a hard time wrapping my arm around how you're going to decarbonize the grid with this two trillion dollar you know stimulus or uh, these two trillion dollar infrastructure plan that's you know going to everything in the kitchen sink, including broadband internet, and which which is you know we can define that as that makes sense that's infrastructure and you know roads and bridges and things like that and 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 you know a lot of it, i think charging stations and everything that that's it's just it's honestly not enough money and i think that you know they're hoping that with these tax you know getting rid of these tax cuts on corporate taxes and and on everything else in the oil and gas industry that they're going to bring that in but it's really complex and i think you know ethan and i mentioned it in our last podcast that this is it's becoming it's obviously bipartisan but it we could have done this 10 years ago and it would have been the same to try to to try to put through a big infrastructure bill like this. You know, every party is going to want to put their own stuff in things and, and each party is going to view, you know, not one stuff in it. I do think it's it's pretty basic and simplistic to me, though, that when you're putting in healthcare things and social things into an infrastructure bill, you're naturally going to have pushback because one, they don't naturally sort of fit in there. And um, that's not typically, you know, people are struggling with this, but it is not typically how we define infrastructure as more physical things that sort of create jobs. And this is this is being sort of being brought in to be more all-inclusive. Um, and the only skepticism really I have is that it's just very hard to pay for all that. You know, you have to have, you know, when, you, when you're paying for sort of more welfare type things that you do have to change the tax structure and regime. And those are um, those are difficult. There's, there's reasons why they haven't been done in, in the past. Um, and I, I just think the, you know, coming back to the industry, it's, it's really, really important to be paying attention to that infrastructure plan, the tax bill associate, you know, the tax plan associated with it. And that's why it's such a big deal in getting so much pushback is because it, it 
this infrastructure thing includes a massive tax change with it. You know, if it was one or the other, it would be different, but this is all together. And that complicates things. And the thread behind that, that the industry has to realize is it's that thread behind it is that climate change executive order, you know, that that sort of, you know, climate change is, is labeled as an existential threat and is the sole everything behind this entire this entire administration. The, the one thing is climate change. Um, and there's many other things, but I would say the single biggest thing they seem to be about is climate change and the green side. And obviously, you know, many, many other social things that they're working on, but that's that's a big, big part of, of what they're trying to do and doing. And it's definitely a big part, of, I think, of how they're actually, you know, administrating right now. Yeah, I'm not super optimistic, at least when it comes to the the grid there, I think last week, Jennifer Granholm said that uh, Germany was the model that they are uh, going to try and emulate, which uh, if that is any indication of what all this has in store, it seems like very high electricity prices for consumers. Well, and, and you know, Germany has, is a, is a, it can be an example of this. And I've looked at these grids. I mean, I've looked at you, you really have to break out where these folks are getting their power. Germany still has a lot of coal, uh, more coal than most, um, most countries. And that's probably, that's because they've had a, you know, they have several coal mines. They have a few coal mines still in, um, in Western Germany and so a few in Eastern Germany. I think they have nine total coal mines, but they employ several thousand people. Um, and it's really hard. That's very entrenched within their, within their system economy. And that's a very, that I believe that constituency is very strong and they've never, they've never reduced that. But also Fukushima was a big game changer. And I think the, the one thing I'm very concerned about is that people are viewing this world like this is, you know, we have the roadmap, we know what we're going to do. We don't really have the roadmap. We have some very simple, technologies we've been using for a while, like wind and solar, and we back that up with uh, fossil fuels. That's the roadmap that we have. Um, and so if you're going to, the way to accelerate decarbonization would be to increase your natural gas consumption, reduce your coal consumption, and use carbon capture. And to me, I'm not hearing that from this administration. I'm not hearing that there's any um, interest in sort of bringing in the oil and gas community. And that's what's really tricky and kind of scary on the natural gas side is that it, when you look at what's happening within what what's what happened with Europe and the reason why um, Germany had to increase their coal consumption and they also use use gas obviously and they have a lot of renewables but it's because they did decrease their nuclear and so nuclear is no longer the sort of option that a lot of folks have because of Fukushima and because of the, the fear around it and it is um, it's very very tricky and to try to build a new we can you know a lot of folks talk about it um, especially in the energy transition community but to try to build a new nuclear power plant in the U.S. would be very very difficult um, to try to build anything. Really new in the U.S. would be very, very difficult. And um, that's not because it's, you know, it, it's naturally hard to do it, but it's because we do have very high environmental standards and we do have a lot of folks that don't want stuff in their backyard. Um, and so you can't just do this. So, you know, I, I commented that I was very uncomfortable with, with some of Biden's comments of, of like, of, you know, put pitting us against China in some ways of, of putting China on a pedestal that they can they can build infrastructure very quickly. Of course they can build infrastructure very quickly. They can um, they don't have rule of law and they don't talk to the people and they don't have environmental standards. So there is no question of like how dirty you're doing this, whatever you're doing this. And their power, their power sector is 65% coal. I mean they produce a massive amount of coal, they consume a massive amount of coal and it's their want they have it. It's it's this thing that they have. So it, it's very concerning the bifurcation we're 
seeing in the world between, you know, and India sort of pushing back saying, you know, the West is going to have to go negative on emissions because they're not going to be able to, um, or they should be allowed to increase their, their emissions. And, you know, they, something we have to realize is these countries, they just have the coal, they actually produce it. So from an energy security perspective, I mean, we're blessed in, in the U.S. and that we have the natural gas. And so we've been able to accelerate that and our emissions are declining and we are at 1992 levels. So it's, um, you know, I, yes, we need and, you know, we do need to invest in infrastructure in the U.S. That's very clear. But I think it's very tricky now and people just have to put on, you know, take politics aside from it, realize, you know, are people really going, you're going to build high speed rail like that's something that COVID has changed. COVID has changed how people view, you know, public transportation. Um, will that come back? Maybe, you know, for sure. I think that may come back, but we just have to be conscientious of that. And that, you know, you can build out all these electric vehicle charging stations and that's great. And in certain cities and stuff that will work, but it's still, it's going to have issues with weather. And, you know, if you haven't changed the grid, you know, what are you powering that with? Because the Northeast is still predominantly coal. I mean, it still has some diesel in it actually as well, not just for heating oil, but for actual power. So, you know, this whole, all these things and the rapidness of them, you know, if you're bringing in the right people and you're thinking about this in a strategic fashion, that works, but it can create a lot of bottlenecks and energy security issues and just um, kinks in the system that um, have nothing to do with partisanship or just the fundamentals of how energy works. And right now, there is no energy that is free from energy. Any energy you produce usually takes energy to make it. And that's just a very, very important consideration. Yeah, before we go then, uh, I think we've hit most of the topics that I wanted to talk to you about, but uh, just want to give you a chance to pitch your podcast, the PetroNerds podcast uh, for our listeners. Um, I mentioned earlier, I listened to a few episodes and you guys really do cover a lot of issues. Um, uh, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about what uh, what you guys have uh, in store on your podcast? Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the doing that. So um, as you, I think we mentioned a little bit before, my, my business, Petronerds, is a you know, is an advising and consulting shop. And we do really granular work to very big macro work. And I, I pride myself in sort of leaving no stone, un, stone unturned and, and covering everything. And that's been really beneficial in terms of, you know, whether you have to get in the weeds on something or whether you want the broader perspective. And it helps it helps clients a lot from having that macro knowledge as well as that micro knowledge. And we've sort of taken that into the podcast and that I wanted a platform to be able to talk to people about these, these significant issues and let them know the stuff I'm working on. Because a lot of folks, you know, in the US think I'm, you know, I didn't know I do a lot of macro and a lot of folks that know when I'm working on individual well assets and stuff didn't know I, you know, think I just do that or vice versa. Um, and so I think this podcast with, with Ethan uh, Bellamy has been really fun and that we're, we're, we're talking about the, the topical issues of the day and we're, you know, giving my at least getting into the weeds as much as possible on some things. This past week, we talked about Biden's infrastructure plan and this, uh, this, uh, in Secretary of, you know, the Interior Department's uh, forum that they hosted, and it was sort of an initial dive, and we've been talking about China quite a bit, and, and coal and everything, and these are initial things, and this is just, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I get to do a lot of various research, and a lot of this information just isn't out there, so um, we encourage people to take a listen. I love the feedback, so if people have constructive criticism or criticism or just advice or whatever, I'm happy to hear it. We're happy to bring other folks on the podcast as well, and it is a bit of a unique format, and I would say it's definitely hard. It's not an easy thing to do, 
um, to, to just have two people and be talking about these topics because you have to prepare and you have to know this stuff um, as opposed to just bringing in a guest where you're just um, where you're talking with them, which is really fun and you're bringing that in and we want to do that. But it's, it's just a different type of format, I think, from the, you know, a lot of the energy stuff that's out there now. Um, and I consume all, you know, I listen to the energy transition podcasts, I listen to the class podcasts, I listen to all of them. And I think it's, um, and energy is just, a, it's a really, really complex topic right now. And they're, um, oil and gas is, you know, is what I know and, and I'm crazy about, but it's, it's really important to understand in a lot of things, the broader things that are happening right now. Great. My guest today has been Trisha Curtis of PetroNerds. Trisha, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.